Good morning, and thank you for uh, allowing me to share with you this morning. Tom just a few minutes ago asked me about giving a brief introduction, and he was a little concerned. He didn't want to say too much about the sermon. I said, well, if you do, that's fine. Um, you know, then I won't have to preach, and I'll just <laughs> defer to you. So, uh, so it wasn't quite good enough, so I'll go ahead and, and share. Um, I'm very thankful to be here this morning, and I just, as, as I was thinking about this passage, uh, if you, you'll turn in your Bibles to 2 Timothy. So I was thinking about this passage and uh, the nature of spiritual gifts in the body of Christ and the nature of suffering as a result of uh, implementing spiritual gifts. I couldn't help but think of all of uh, the people represented in this body who have used their gifts so well for our benefit uh, being overseas. I think of the, uh, I, I can't even honestly begin to, to list off names and people because there's too many. Uh, the organization, the thoughtfulness, those who are gifted with uh, administration that have organized the sending of gifts that people who have, who have given with the gift of generosity, uh, the gift of service that so many have offered uh, anything from helping out with kids to um, lending vehicles. Uh, it's just been unbelievable. Giving toys uh, that our house, our apartment that we're staying in is full of toys that have been very generously offered. And I, I hope that you will get those back. You may have to talk to some of my kids about that. Um, but we have, we have enjoyed very much the, uh, just, just the benefit of the body of Christ and the gifting that you all have implored on our behalf has, has really been overwhelming. And I said before when we first came, I said, I will take every opportunity I can to just thank you. And, and really, if I could, I, I really can't thank you enough. And just lavish thanks upon you for your care for us. And, and I know it's a partnership in the gospel that you feel. And, uh, and we, we are overwhelmed. Let me just pray for us as, as we look to the passage. Father, I thank you for your grace this morning, and I thank you just on this day that is somber, that is a memorial to tragedy. Father, we sang a memorial to another great tragedy, the crucifixion of Christ, which has given us life. So, Father, I just I praise you this morning that whatever what whatever is said. Whatever is heard, that you would take these words and you would implant them upon hearts, that you would bring about, about the fruit of your gospel in your people. And, uh, Father, I thank you for what you will do through uh, your word this morning. And I pray for clarity of thought, clarity of speech, and clarity of hearing. And most importantly, Father, I pray that we would walk in faith and truth from what we hear for your name's sake, I pray in Jesus' name. Amen. I guess if we could kind of capture this passage, first, first Timothy, or 2 Timothy 2, uh, 2 Timothy 1, verses 6 through 10, into one kind of summary, we're talking about spirit-empowered ministry. Now, if you, if you have any kind of uh, associations with other churches, friends who go to other churches, uh, even, in, even in our church, there's a lot of confusion out there regarding what spirit-empowered biblical ministry is. I had a conversation recently with somebody, and I asked how their church was going. 
how it was doing. And the immediate answer after that was the number that attended the previous Sunday. In his mind, you know, that's, that's the measure of, of successful spiritual-empowered ministry. There's another church that I was familiar with out in California that the philosophy of the church and the pastor was if we are not building a building, if there is not a building program on paper that we are advancing in, then, then we, are, we are not doing well as a church. That is the measure of successful ministry. I know uh, a lot of people, a lot of churches measure success by massive programming. How many programs do we have? How successful are they? How many people are coming? All of these kind of things that measure the spiritual depth and power of ministry. What I want to look at this morning is draw our attention to how Scripture describes Spirit-empowered ministry. So how does it describe it? If you, you were just to sit here for a minute, at the beginning of the sermon, and in your mind think, what is Spirit-empowered ministry, and what does it look like? What, what would be some of the things that come to mind? How are we as a church called by God to minister faithfully and boldly by the power of the Spirit? So I think in our passage today, Paul answers this question for us. We find Paul teaching Timothy how to engage in bold, spirit-empowered ministry. I think there's two things that he's directing Timothy to. First of all, he's calling Timothy to fearlessly cultivate his spiritual gifts. And secondly, to share in suffering of the gospel. Now we as a church too, not just Timothy, are called to bold, spirit-powered ministry through fearlessly cultivating your gifts by the power of the Spirit and by embracing gospel suffering by the power of God. So look with me, if you will, starting, uh, we'll start in verse 3 of 2 Timothy chapter 1. I thank God who I serve, as did my ancestors, with clear conscience, as I remember you consistently in my prayers night and day. As I remember your tears, I long to see you, that I may be filled with joy. I'm reminded of your sincere faith, a faith that dwelt first in your grandmother Lois, in your mother Eunice, and now, I'm sure, dwells in you as well. For this reason, I remind you to fan into flame the gift of God which is in you through the laying on of my hands. For God gave us a spirit not of fear, but of power and love and self-control. Therefore, do not be ashamed of the testimony about our Lord nor of me, his prisoner, but share in suffering for the gospel by the power of God, who saved us and called us to a holy calling, not because of our works, but because of his own purpose and grace, which he gave us in Christ Jesus before the ages began, and which now has been manifested through the appearing of our Savior, Jesus Christ, who abolished death and brought life and immortality to light through the gospel, for which I was appointed a preacher an apostle and teacher, which is why I suffer as I do. But I am not ashamed, for I know whom I have believed, and am convinced that he is able to guard until that day what has been entrusted to me. Follow the pattern of sound words that you have heard from me in faith and love that are in Christ Jesus. By the Holy Spirit, who dwells within us. Guard the good deposit entrusted to you. This morning, we're just going to focus mainly on verses 6 through 10. That will be the, uh, the kind of the core of our text. Beginning with Tim, uh, Paul's call to Timothy to cultivate the gift that is in him. 
as a new creature in Christ, as new creatures in Christ, you and I are called to bold ministry through fearlessly cultivating your gifts. We find this in verses 6 through 8. So what, what happens here is Paul is introducing something to Timothy. He's saying to Timothy, we need to talk about your ministry. And the first thing that Paul wants to do is identify his ministry with a sincere faith. So Paul says, you see at the beginning of verse 6, he says, for this reason. For what reason? For the sincere faith that you have possessed. So in other words, the very foundation that Paul is laying for us here is that faithful God-centered, gospel-centered ministry, spirit-empowered ministry must begin with sincere faith. So Paul's goal ultimately is to motivate Timothy to bold ministry that doesn't cave or capitulate or compromise to any fear of man, but this must be first rooted in genuine faith. I like what John MacArthur said about this. He says, the product of sincere faith is faithful service. And the heart of faithful service is ministering our gift unreservedly for the Lord. So if we are to use our our gifts, we begin with sincere faith. If we have sincere faith, we are going to be ministering with our gifts. So Paul, how does Paul then say Timothy needs to move with spirit empowered ministry? He says to him, you've been entrusted with a gift and you need to fan that gift into flame. Now, it's kind of a unique situation here because we have Paul and Timothy and there's this idea of laying on of hands and receiving a gift. And if we're not careful, we'll distance ourselves from this and say, wow, Timothy had something that, uh, that I don't have. I didn't have uh, Paul come lay his hands on me and give me a gift. We're not sure exactly what Paul means here. He may have been talking about the time that, that uh, Timothy was saved. Uh, Paul does refer to himself as Timothy's spiritual father. So maybe Paul was there and had his hand on him when spiritual gifts were given to Timothy. Uh, most commentators think it is, is something more along the lines of an ordination, ministry, uh, ordination gift that Paul had given to him, kind of a special enabling that he had given to Timothy. Whatever the case may be, we know that Paul is referring mainly to the charisma or the gift that all believers possess. If you look in Romans 12, 4 through 8, Paul says, For as in one body we have many members, and the members do not all have the same, uh, same function. So we, though many, are one body in Christ and individually members of one, one another. Having gifts that differ according to the grace given to us, let us use them. If prophecy in proportion to our faith, if service in our serving, the one who teaches in his teaching, the one who exhorts in his exhortation, the one who contributes in generosity, the one who leads with zeal, the one who does acts of mercy with cheerfulness. So at a, at a minimum, what Paul is saying here is, Timothy, you have received a gift. And he explains to us all throughout his epistles what these gifts consist of. And here in Romans 12, he's, he's kind of blowing this out a little bit wider for us. And he's saying there's all kinds of gifts. There's many gifts. There's teaching, there's exhortation, there's generosity, there's, there's preaching, there's serving, there's all kinds of gifts. But what is the purpose of those? The gifts are given to the church to demonstrate the unity of the body. He says, I, I love the way that he says this, he says, we are individually members of one another. So fundamentally, the gifts are given to this church, to this body, 
for us to be unified together, not as individuals, but as one body, demonstrating the glory of Christ. This also gives us great humility and interdependence, which demonstrates not only to the world, to each other, to angels, to principalities, the glory and the unity of the church. Paul explained this, explains this also in uh, 1 Corinthians 12, 4 through 7. He says, Now there are varieties of gifts, but the same Spirit. And there are varieties of service, but the same Lord. And there are varieties of activities, but it is the same God who empowers them all in everyone. To each is given the manifestation of the Spirit for the common good. So God, in His graciousness, through the purchase of Christ, his issued to us by the Spirit gifts that are not for our own good, but they are given to this church for the common good, for everyone's sake. So what are some of the implications of this? Just kind of thinking about the gifts for a moment. Spiritual gifts are given to us for humility, for unity, and are to be exercised within the visible body or the local church. You know, I was kind of thinking about this a little bit earlier. We, we think about... You know, Paul compares the, the, um, the gifts to hands and eyes and ears and uh, feet. And he's, he's creating this idea that, that the gifts are a unified body that are working together for the common good, building each other up in the faith. And we, as the visible body of Christ, are, have been entrusted with everything that we need. The Spirit has empowered us with all that we need for the proper edification and building up of this church. So Paul's basic admonition to Timothy and to all of us who are believers is the same. He says divine giftedness is not something that is to be squandered, but it is something to be continually cultivated or fanned into flame. So what does Paul mean when he says, Timothy, you have this gift, now fan it into flame. Now if if any of you have a little bit more grilling uh, skills than I do, maybe you have not had this experience. But I can remember many days in the summertime with my little Weber grill, standing there with a newspaper just going like this, trying to get a, get a flame going. You know, so there's heat in there, but it just needed more air. So what Paul is saying here is, is a, a, a similar analogy. Now, how do we do that with the gifts? What he means is to make full use or to regularly exercise the gift that we have received so that it does not atrophy from neglect or disuse. Kind of like a runner or a weightlifter who, who stops and suddenly their muscles begin to, to shrink and, and dwindle. Their endurance is gone. So what he's saying is you have been given a gift. You are to make full use of that gift for the good of the body. Now I think Paul answers an objection here to Timothy. He says, why is it that if you have been given a gift, why is it that we do not continually fan this into flame? And I think the answer he gives for us is in verse 7. He says, for God gave us not a spirit of fear, but a power of love and of self-control. So he's stepping back from Timothy and he's saying, Timothy, fan your flame, fan the gift into flame. Maybe one of the reasons you don't do that is because you're fearful. Perhaps Paul had in mind Matthew 25, the parable of Jesus. And if you remember the, the parable of the talents, where a wealthy landowner uh, went away for some time, and he entrusted his property, his, 
goods, his gifts, if you will, with the servants. He gave one five, he gave one two, and he gave another servant one. He said, I'm going to go, for, go away for a while. You need to use these, you need to cultivate these, and when I return, uh, we'll, we'll see what you have done with them. So if you remember the one with the five talents, he invested them and he got five more. The one with the two invested them and, and, and got a return on those. And then the, the man with one, he says, the master returned and he said to the man with one, he also had received the one ta- he who also received the one talent came forward saying, Master, I knew you to be a hard man, reaping where you did not sow and gathering where you scattered no seed. So I was afraid, and I went and hid your talent in the ground. Here you have here, have what is yours. But his master answered him and said to him, and this is really quite surprising what he says to him. He didn't call him wise. He didn't say this is a safe investment. He says, you wicked and slothful servant. You knew that I reap where I have not sown and gather where I had not scattered. And then at the end of the chapter, he says, and he cast the worthless servant into outer darkness. In that place, there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. So for us who have gifts, the last thing that we can do is give in to fear. If we are fanning the flame that in cultivating the gifts, one of our greatest enemies is fear. So Paul doesn't leave us hanging there. He doesn't say, don't give in to fear. Now hold on by your own bootstraps and be brave. He doesn't say that. He gives us reason why we should not give in to fear. He says, for God has not given us a spirit of fear, but what he has given us is a spirit of power and love and of self-control. So we have power. We do not need more power to use our gifts. It has been given to us. So we no longer, we should not, give in to fear that we are incapable of using our gifts. Or perhaps our gifts won't be useful. I know one of the first things that maybe comes to mind when we contemplate cultivating or using our gifts, we think, ah, yeah, I, I really can't do that. That's really too much. And, and what is the problem there is we're looking at the power that indwells us and not the power that has been given to us through the Spirit. Remember what the power is that has been given to you. Paul says in Ephesians 1, 18 through 20, that you have been given the very power that has raised Christ from the dead. That is the power that is in you. How can we give in to fear, thinking we cannot use our gifts when we have been given power? Not only power, but we've been given love. Now, when we first read this, we maybe have a tendency to look at ourselves and say, you know what, I really don't have that much love. I may be called or given a gift of service or generosity, but I really don't love the people that I'm called to serve. That's not what, that's not what Paul's saying at all. He's not saying you have love. He's saying that God has given you his love. He has placed his love, as Romans 5, 5 says, the love of God has been poured into our hearts. So we are able to move towards people in gifts, knowing that God's love is in us. We're not looking at our own resources. We don't have anything. We're looking to the power of God. We're looking to the love that has been given to us. And third, he says, you've been given a sound mind. Godly wisdom is to be applied to the gifts. 
fanning the flame into the gifts. And, and, and sometimes, you know, we think this. We think, man, if I start ministering and using my gifts, it's just going to spiral out of control. My life is just going to be crazy. It's going to be a mess. I'm going to neglect my family. I'm going to neglect my wife. No, God didn't give us that spirit. So, so when, we, when we say that to ourselves, we kind of step back in fear and we say, yeah, I'm, I'm not going there. But that's not the spirit he's given us. Spiritual power and the use of the, of the gifts is a well-ordered well uh, spiritual empowerment. So let me step back just for a minute by way of some application as we think about the gifts. First of all, there's some people here, I'm sure, that do not possess a sincere faith. If you remember what Paul said at the beginning, he, he commended uh, Timothy's mother. He commended his grandmother for their sincere faith. But he didn't identify Timothy's faith with his parents with, or with his mother and with his grandmother's faith. He said, this sincere faith is also yours. Now, I think a lot of us, a lot of people, especially in the South, identify as Christians. We identify ourselves as cultural Christians, perhaps. What Paul is saying here is you yourself must possess a sincere faith. Others here maybe. You don't even have any desire to minister within the, tr- in the, in the church. I want to remind you what I said a minute ago, that true faith gives new desires and affections which cause us to love and serve Christ. So if you're in this church, you're attending this church with absolutely no desire to use any, to, to serve, I would call you to consider the sincerity of your faith. Secondly, by way of application, thinking about your gifts, how do you neglect cultivating or fanning into flame your gifts due to fear? You know, one of the ways that I thought of was by way of comparison. You look at somebody else serving and you say, you know what, I will never do it that good. So I'm going to step back in fear and just kind of stay on the sidelines and watch. Maybe you think about, you know what, I'm not really that enabled. I'm not that equipped. So I'm just going to stop and you know, maybe take a few more classes, maybe read a few more books, and at some point, I'm going to be able to be, you know, really get in there. Maybe some of you fear this slippery slope that as soon as I start using my gifts, I'm going to get sucked into this vortex of ministry, and I'm never going to come out. Maybe some of you are, are thinking about rejection, that if you move toward a person, a friend, with a word of admonishment or with a word even of encouragement you may lose that friend so you're fearfully holding back maybe be maybe you're thinking about your own capabilities you're thinking you know what i could never love those people enough to serve them in the way that they need to be served there's a really an ongoing need to cultivate this and fan into flame these gifts. I think about our own situation. You know, I, sometimes there's this perception that if you're in this position of ministry, whether it be a pastor, teacher, missionary, whatever it is, that you're, you know, you're, you've got it. You've got it nailed. You know, you've got this, this system of ministry that you're just able to walk in. That is not the case at all. Anyone in vocational ministry must continually remind themselves of the need to fan into flame the gifts that God has given. One of the ways that we have to do that is we have to evaluate 
the fear that is very real within us. If I go talk to this person and I share the gospel with this person, they may be connected with that person and it may get around that I'm trying to convert this person to faith in Jesus. That's going to get us in a lot of trouble. So we have to step back and we have to say, you know what? God's given us a sound mind and wisdom. We have to evaluate that. But I can't give in to fear and not use the gift of evangelism that maybe God has given us. And this has got to be a daily thing that we're fanning into flame. So spirit-empowered ministry is not just found as we fan our gifts into flame, but we find as we cultivate our gifts, we are called to embrace greater gospel suffering. So the second point that I just want to call your attention to this morning is as a new creature in Christ, you are called to bold ministry through embracing gospel suffering. This is really the only imperative in this passage. In other words, this is, this is a one thing that Paul is saying to Timothy. He's saying, do this. What is it that he says to do? In verse 8, Therefore, don't be ashamed of the testimony about the Lord, nor of me, his prisoner. This is the imperative. He says, but share in suffering for the gospel by the power of God. So essentially, as Paul is, Paul is kind of reflecting on his own life. And he's saying, as I faithfully walk out the gifts that God has given me in the location, in the calling that God has given me, given me, I have been faced with suffering. That's what he says in verse 12. At the bottom there, he says, he says, I was appointed a preacher, an apostle, and a teacher, and this is why I suffer the way that I do. So there's a connection here, I think, that Paul is trying to make between cultivating our gifts and suffering. For any of you who are in ministry, you know the reality of this. The more that you faithfully walk in your gifts, usually the more suffering, the more hardship that kind of gets, gets heaped upon you. But what Paul is saying here is he's saying, don't give in to fear, don't give in to shame, whether it's of me as a prisoner or of the gospel. You can't give in to these things, but instead you need to embrace suffering. So let's just take a minute. Think about suffering. What is suffering? Paul is not calling Timothy to recklessness. He's not saying to Timothy, you need to go get yourself in jail like I am. He's not saying that. In fact, later on in the book, he warns Timothy. He says, watch out for Alexander because he, he will cause you great harm. So he's, he's using a sound mind and he's saying, you don't just run into suffering. It's also not doing evil. If you remember in 1 Peter chapter 2, Peter says, he says, if you do something wrong and you're beaten for it, you deserve it. You're, an, you're a moron. But if you do good and you suffer for it, this is a gracious thing in the eyes of God. I think Paul gives us really a great example of what suffering is right across the page. If your Bible's like mine. In 2 Timothy chapter 2, verses 3, he uses the same language. He says, share in suffering. As a good soldier of Jesus Christ, no soldier gets entangled in civilian pursuits since his aim is to please the one who enlisted him. An athlete is not crowned unless he competes according to the rules. It is the hardworking farmer who ought to have the first share of the crops. Think over what I say, for the Lord will give you understanding and everything. So Paul gives us really three examples, three pictures of what suffering looks like. The first one is a soldier. A soldier suffers as he is single-minded in his pursuit. In other words, he kind of untangles his life from the things of this world. 
for the last 10 years, we have seen unbelievable examples of good soldiers. I think of uh, Pat Tillman, who was a professional, an NFL uh, football player. And he chose to, in a sense, let go of his rights to a successful career, to a lucrative contract, to become a soldier. So he untangled himself kind of with the affairs of this world, and he ultimately gave the ultimate sacrifice and died in the war. That is a definition of a good soldier. He's letting go of his rights. He's letting go of the things that he could have as a civilian, and he's living for his master. The second example Paul gives is, is an athlete. You know, there's a discipline that an athlete endures. He knows the discipline, and he knows what discipline it will take for him to be successful, and he gladly and willingly endures it. And as a rule, I think, Paul would have us say, as a rule, as we compete or as we minister, there will be degrees and there will be seasons of suffering. Not everyone's suffering is going to look the same. We can look throughout church history and we see pockets where people have had to give their lives in dramatic fashion. And a lot of time, that's where our mind goes when we think of suffering. There's other seasons and pockets in time where people are ministering and kind of on the outside, we don't see a lot of external suffering, but there may be anxiety and hopelessness and fear internally. So the definition of suffering is much wider than just getting put into jail. I think Paul helps us out with this. Actually, let me back up to the farmer. Just mention a farmer. A farmer, all kinds of work and labor in a long time with no fruit. Isn't that an incredible example of ministry? And the suffering that, that, that can be a part of that where we're laboring with somebody, with an addiction. Maybe we're walking beside them. And they continually and continually fall back into that pattern. We're laboring the word and we just we don't see fruit. That's a form of suffering. So f- suffering is more than imprisonment. It's more than beatings. 2 Corinthians 11. Paul lists off a bunch of his sufferings. He talks about dangers, all kinds of dangers. He mentions toil. He mentions hardship. He mentions sleepless nights. He mentions anxiety. He mentions hunger. I like the definition of suffering that, that John Piper gives us. He says, suffering is the pain that happens to you in the path of obedience to Christ. Suffering is the pain or the hardship that happens to you in the path of obedience to Christ. I think it's important to remember also that suffering is ordained by God. Philippians 1.29, Paul's writing to the Philippians, and he says, It has been granted to you that for the sake of Christ, you should not only believe in him, but also suffer for his sake. So Paul is attributing faith to a gift of God, but he's also attributing suffering to the gift of God. When Paul was going back after his first missionary journey to the various churches, what was one of the admonitions he gave him? He said in Acts 14.22, he said, through many tribulations we must enter the kingdom of God. You know, one of the awesome aspects of this, of spirit-led ministry, is that we are allowed and sometimes ordained to share in the sufferings of Christ. 1 Peter 4.12-23 says, Beloved, Don't be surprised, and I I think this is what John and Ray in Sunday school were alluding to. 
Don't be surprised at the fiery trial when it comes upon you to test you, as though something strange were happening to you. But rejoice insofar as you share in Christ's sufferings, that you may also rejoice and be glad when his glory is revealed. So as we fan into flame our gifts, we are going to move more and more and more toward suffering. For Paul, this meant imprisonment. For Timothy, it may have meant something else. We don't know exactly what Paul had in mind, and we don't know exactly the dangers that were facing him. For us, it probably will not mean imprisonment. But what does it mean? It means untangling ourselves from the things of this world. It means readjusting our priorities. It means for those of, those of you who teach or are gifted to teach, it means toil and study on the only day of the week that you have off. It means sleepless nights, staying up with somebody who is in the depths of discouragement as you offer your gift of encouragement. It means you are enjoying less possessions because you are exercising and fanning into flame the gift of generosity that God has given you. Maybe it's enduring the threats that are given to you as you walk closely with somebody in a very abusive relationship. Maybe it's less time for soccer on the weekends or less time for ourselves and more for the church. Maybe it's thanklessness as you serve the body of Christ and nobody says thank you. You do it over and over and over again. You just wonder, is anybody, does anybody even care? Maybe it's getting taken advantage of. If, if you're a generous person and you exercise your gifts of generosity, people come along and they begin to take advantage of you. Maybe it's the labor that you have given over and over and over again to a family or to a friend in this body. And it seems like, you know what, there's, there's just no fruit. I don't see anything happening. So here's, here's the question then. How are we to suffer for the gospel? And what empowers us to suffer for the gospel? He says here, and he gives us the answer, suffer for the gospel, and then the next, next phrase is by the power of God. So many commentators kind of look at this the, from verses 9 through the end, and they see kind of a, a poem. They see really three points talking about how we suffer. We suffer through God. We suffer through grace, and we suffer because of Jesus Christ. So we can embrace suffering because of God who saved us. Look at verse, uh, at the end of verse 8, beginning of verse 9, it says, Share in suffering for the gospel by the power of God who saved us and called us to a holy calling, not because of our works, but because of his own purpose and grace. So we are to embrace suffering because of God. And it's, in a sense, if you step back and you look at this, what you see in all three of these aspects is you see God's electing grace calling us out of darkness saving us and transforming us. So, so, so God, uh, Paul makes a declarative statement. He says, you can embrace suffering because God saved you. He has effectually called you. He has made you a partaker of the heavenly calling. He is sufficient to keep you. In Romans 5.10, it says, if we were reconciled to God through the death of his son, much more having, having been reconciled, we shall be saved by his life. 
So there's nothing that can threaten our salvation from before eternity. God has chosen to save us. So we can go to the nations because there's nothing that can separate us from the love of God. We can have that difficult conversation as we trust in this promise because nothing, no one can bring a charge against God's elect. We're able to prioritize the church in our life and in ministry because we aren't losing anything. He who gave us Jesus Christ, how will he not also freely give us all things? So we embrace suffering also because of grace, which was given to us. We are saved, as Paul says here, without any consideration to what we have done. It was completely founded in his own purposes. Grace has saved you. It's, it's not just something that has happened in the past. It is something that has been given to you now that will complete you. So we are called to fan our gifts. We know that it could lead to suffering. But a lot of times what we do is we kind of look at our own failures or even our potential failures. Say, you know what? I'm not the guy. Look at my life. Look at my, look at my lack of holiness. We're called here to embrace suffering because we're looking at grace. We're not looking at ourselves. It is Christ who has enabled you. He has empowered you. and There is nothing in you holy except what Christ has given you. So we can move to people with, without any regard for our potential failures because we know that we are holy, eternally holy in Christ. We can embrace suffering also because of Christ. He has abolished death for us. This isn't something that just kind of remained in the mind of God, but he actually came in the form of Jesus Christ and actualized our salvation. That's what he says in verse, uh, verse 10. He says, Jesus Christ has now been manifested to us, or the grace has been manifested to us now through the appearing of our Savior, Jesus Christ. What did he do? He abolished death, and he brought life and immortality to light through the gospel. So Jesus came in reality and has given you life. So you now have new affections and new desires, which enables you to embrace suffering, which enables you then to fan into flame the gifts that God has given you. Because the things that used to be attractive to you are dwindling more and more and more in their attractiveness because of the life that Christ has given you. Death is also abolished. Nothing can move you and me from God. You know, I think of the, of the, the well-known quote by now by a missionary, John Patton, who was going, a, a young guy who had a very successful ministry to college students, and he was headed off to an island near Papua New Guinea. And this island was known to have cannibals. There had been many people who had gone to try to reach these people and had literally, literally been clubbed to death and eaten just as they had stepped off the boat. So John Patton was talking to an elder statesman in his church, kind of this old wise guy. Well, not that kind of wise guy, but a guy who was really wise. His name was Mr. Dickinson. Dickinson and Mr. Dickinson explained to him, if you go there, you're going to be eaten by cannibals. In other words, what are you thinking? You're going to go there and you're, you're just going to die. And he said to him, his well-known quote, he says, Mr. Dickinson, you are advanced in years now. And your own prospect is soon to be laid, laid in the grave, there to be eaten by worms. I confess to you that if I can but live and die serving and honoring the Lord Jesus, it will main, make no difference to me whether I'm eaten by cannibals or by worms. And in the great day, 
My resurrection body will rise just as fair as yours in the likeness of our risen Savior. So that the electing purposes of God, your security in God, the fact that death has been abolished in Jesus Christ, there, there is nothing that can hold us back from suffering. Not even death itself. Now I know some of you maybe are thinking, and just in closing, let me just step back and say this. They, you're saying, okay, Steve, here's what you're saying. You're saying, or Paul, hopefully, is saying this. He's saying, fan the, flame into, fan, fan the gifts into a flame. So I'm cultivating my gifts. I'm walking more and more into deeper ministry with people, deeper service of this church, and the result of that is going to be suffering. And I, I know everybody's just going, I'm in. I'm ready to go. I know some of you are thinking, well, what, what, what's, you know, what's the good there? Where's the joy there? Let me just point out just a couple of, of promises here. First of all, there is, there is no joy in suffering for suffering's sake. We don't run to suffering because, you know what, uh, suffering is kind of this cool thing and uh, it'll make me look good. And that, we don't run to suffering. Remember, suffering is sovereignly ordained by a good and holy God. But if we are rooted in Christ, we are trusting a good and sovereign God in suffering, we're not looking at fear, we're not looking at all the reasons why we shouldn't suffer, but we're looking at who we are in Christ, and we're fanning our gifts into flame, and we're walking into ministry, and suffering comes. Where's the joy there? First of all, I think there is joy in that we will find the promises of the gospel more satisfying than we ever would without suffering. So in other words, as we suffer, we root ourselves into these promises of God that we just talked about that are all throughout Scripture. And we find, you know what? God is so much more satisfying than my time. He is so much more satisfying than this little neat ministry that I constructed. He's so much more satisfying than my goals He's so much more satisfying than the dreams that I had for myself because I'm letting go of those and I'm rooting myself more deeply in the gospel. And that is unbelievably satisfying. So we gain joy in finding the gospel more satisfying. Second of all, we find joy in greater holiness. Suffering prepares us to see Christ. First Peter, Peter 1, 6 through 8 reminds us of this. The suffering brings testing. And when the testing comes at the appearing of Christ, there will be more glory and more joy for us. Third, it brings great reward. Matthew 10, or Matthew 5, let me just turn there briefly. Matthew 5, Sermon on the Mount, Jesus says, He says, Blessed are those who persecute, persecute you for righteousness' sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are you when others revile you and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account. Rejoice and be glad. And here's the joy. For your reward is great in heaven. For so they persecuted the prophets who are before you. So we can walk into suffering. We can walk into using our gifts, which will lead to suffering, knowing that there is unbelievable joy that we would have never experienced without the suffering. So let me just end with three points of specific application for us, trying hopefully to draw these things together very briefly. 
Let me ask you this. What are the ways in which you are seeking to minister with your gifts and are suffering hardships as a result? In other words, think about your ministry in this church, in this body. What are the ways that you are seeking to use your gifts? And what are the sufferings, in a sense, that are coming about because of that? As you think about those things, consider these three gospel promises in 9 through 10, verses 9 and 10. What gospel truth? What is it about your security in Christ? What is it about grace? What is it about the appearing of Christ that can enable enable you to endure this hardship for the sake of the gospel? Secondly, with, with Paul's charge here to fan and to flame our gifts, what is one specific area where you can move to people using your gifts with greater boldness? In other words, kind of step back and look at the way that God has gifted you and say, you know what? I can move with greater boldness using this gift toward people for the betterment of the church, for the building up of the saints in this particular area. What are the fears that have inhibited you from using your gifts more boldly? In other words, sit back and think, you know, what are the ways in which I know that I'm gifted? I know that God has given me power. But you know what? I'm not really walking in that. Are there specific fears that you are giving into and failing to believe by faith in the gospel? What are some of the ways that you may suffer as you move with greater boldness? And as you think about those ways that you may suffer, what are the promises of the gospel declared here and all throughout Scripture that are yours to anchor you and enable you to embrace suffering? And finally, maybe there's some of you here this morning that don't possess a sincere faith in Christ of what we spoke earlier. You may even consider yourself a Christian or be a regular attender at this church. Let me just declare to you specifically Jesus Christ has appeared in history to take your sin upon himself. He was crushed and beaten by the Father, pouring out his wrath upon his Son so that there is no wrath left for you to bear. So God in his mercy moved with justice on his Son and he is calling you today to repent of your sin to embrace Jesus Christ, giving you a sincere faith in the gospel. There's nothing else that can save you. So thank you this morning for allowing me to share. And I, I just, I, I'm, just as I think about this passage, I think about this church, and I think about us being overseas, and it's like we're doing some very different things in many ways. <laughs> I can give you some lists if you like. But I, I, I think about us equally wrestling with our gifts and fanning our gifts into flame. And there's going to be suffering that comes to you here that is unique. There's going to be suffering that comes to us in Asia that's unique. But it's all rooted in the gospel. And we're all sharing in that suffering together in very different places and in very different ways. That, that will bring incredible joy to us in the end. Let me pray. Father, thank you for your grace. Thank you for the gospel that enables us to endure. Not just endure, but, but have joy and suffering because we see more of the glory of Christ. Father, may you take these words. We ask in Jesus' name, amen.